I want to uh, show you something and see if some of you recognize what I'm talking about. Who's seen this before or something like it? Yeah? It's called the five love languages. Yeah, who, who knows about the five languages? If you don't know, you can actually go online and, and do a bit of a survey to find out what your love language is. Uh, the, the idea is that um, there's five ways in which people give and receive love. And while we value all of these different ones, we have a sort of a, a primary love language usually. Um, so it could be words of affirmation, that's my wife's uh, love language, acts of service, that's probably your Asian parents' love language, uh, receiving gifts, uh, quality time, physical touch. Um, now, they're hard to remember and, and conceptualize, so I, I thought of a, a better way of, of understanding them. So if you want to know what the five love languages when it comes to tacos is, let's taco about our relationship. Um, that pun is for you, Becky. Uh, words of affirmation, your tacos are delicious. Acts of service, I made you tacos. Receiving gifts, here's a taco. Quality time, let's go out for tacos together. Physical touch, let me hold you like a taco. <laughs> so the idea of five love languages is we each have a, a primary love language, and that's the way that we give and receive love. Um, and so if you want to love someone well, don't just think, what is my love language? Because usually you'll default into your one. You want to be thinking about what's their love language. So my wife's love language is different to mine. Mine's more physical touch. Hers is words of affirmation. Um, so I want to be thinking, well, Karen really appreciates words, words of affirmation, words to tell her I love her and so on. And so I need to speak her love language so that she can hear that I love her. Um, those of you, again, I said kind of as a, by way of a joke, a lot of uh, you grow up with Asian parents whose primary love language is what? Acts of service. Some of you are like, my parents have never told me they love me, Right? but they've probably shown you in a hundred different ways that they love you without using words because their love language is what? Acts of service. Yours might be words of affirmation or physical touch. My parents have never hugged me or whatever, all right? So you've got to speak the other person's love language. Have you ever wondered what is God's love language? What is God's love language? You know, at the end of um, the Gospel of John, which we've been in for the last little while until Deuteronomy, Jesus, the risen Jesus, asks Peter, his chief disciple, they're out fishing, Jesus asks Peter, after their fishing trip, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? That's a pretty big question for the Lord Jesus to ask, especially in the context of John 21, Peter feels pretty bad having just betrayed Jesus. Well, Jesus today is asking you and me, do you love me? And I wonder how you would answer that question. And I wonder if you've ever thought, is my answer to that question, the way I express love for God, is that in God's love language? What is God's love language? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Old Testament actually will tell us today. Why don't we pray? Let's get ready to hear from God. Because I know today that God will particularly want to speak to some of us in really specific and really powerful ways. So I will pray that God will do that. Father God, you have given us these precious words 
And in the same way as Moses said to Israel, Hear, O Israel, in the hearing of your word today, you will bring these thousands of year old words right into the present. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that powerfully you will speak to each and every heart. Whether people here don't yet have a relationship with you or wondering what that looks like, or whether they are followers of Jesus and there's just a special word, perhaps of correction and rebuke, that you need to be speaking to us. Father, would you spare none of us from seeing, tasting, hearing your glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got some points on your outlines you got when you came in. Uh, The first is by way of just recap. So you remember that we're in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy takes place 40 years after the first generation of people came out of slavery in Egypt. God rescued his people, made them his own. But because of their own sin, a whole generation perishes in the wilderness, in the desert. 40 years later, they are coming to the edge of the promised land that God has promised to give them, a sort of Eden Mark II. All right, Eden 2.0, and they're about to go in, and it's so important, remember Moses says to them, so important that they make the right decision this time, that this new generation faced with the decision would now choose life, they would choose blessing, they would choose to obey God unlike their fathers and their mothers who perished in the desert. So we're in decision time, they're on the edge, and this is Moses' final speeches, Right? He has three speeches or three sermons, if you like. And remember I said a couple of weeks ago, Deuteronomy's best heard. So if you have audio Bibles, put it on audio because it's actually best heard. Um, his first sermon was chapters 1 to 4. Last week we finished chapter 4 with Pastor Marshall. And chapters 1 to 4, uh, you had the flashback of, of where they failed, why they took 40 years. Remember the Google map fail? Right? Why is it that they took 40 years? Um, And then last chapter uh, with Pastor Marshall, that call to obey and worship Him only, God only. That's Moses' first sermon. In chapter 5, he begins his second sermon, and this sermon is long. This is going to carry us all the way to chapter 26. Now, chapter 5, we won't actually go into much detail. You may have had a look at it in your community groups this week, is another flashback, a flashback to when they started that relationship with God formally. When they started that relationship with God formally at a place called Horeb or Mount Sinai, and particularly when God gave them the Ten Commandments. Right? You guys know the Ten Commandments. Everyone knows what they are. You may not know them specifically. You know that there are Ten Commandments. But the, the whole idea of that, that thing that took place where God gave them the commandments is like a formal ceremony that began their relationship with God, the formalized their relationship with God, sort of like a wedding ceremony. A wedding ceremony is where a couple come together in the presence of witnesses and the nature of their relationship is defined and they make promises to each other. Right? At Mount Sinai, God, the Lord, or Yahweh is, 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 is the translation. Um, uh, well, we, we get the translation, the Lord, L-O-R-D in capitals, but the, the, the word is probably Yahweh, that's his name, all right? Yahweh and his people formalize their relationship. And that relationship is defined in the covenant, this formalized relationship, where the Ten Commandments become sort of like their constitution, their national constitution, right? Every country has a constitution, Australia included. The Ten Commandments sort of become their constitution. Now, that's chapter five. But you see, lest we think 
that their relationship with God, this covenant, is just about laws and commands and duties. Because you know what? If a marriage is just about laws and commands and duties, it's not much of a relationship, is it? Like, none of you who are married are thinking it's all about, you know, who's doing what duty and whose chores are doing what. And, you know, a marriage is not defined primarily by that, even if you do have, a, you know, splitting of responsibilities and so on. Right? And neither is their relationship with Yahweh, the Lord, just about commands and duties and expectations. And it's Deuteronomy 6 that tells us what the heart and soul of their relationship with God is about. Right? It's not about duties and laws primarily. It's about what? It's about, look at chapter 6, verse 5. You'll need to keep your Bibles open. It's about love. That's at the heart of their covenant relationship with God. All the commands flow out of this. It's about love. Love the Lord your God, it says, with all your heart, soul, and strength. And by the way, just to see how important this verse is in the whole of the Bible, remember Jesus, and what, when people ask Jesus, what is the most important command? Which is the one he says? It's this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Right? Even in the New Testament, even in the lips of Jesus, this one word, no, this one verse captures the relationship with God. Chapter 6 will spell out what it means to love God. Spell out his love language. Before we go on, though, to point two, I want you to note that this assumes that love is a choice. Have you ever thought about that? How many of you know that love is a choice? Remember, Israel is at the place of decision. They have to make choices. They are asked to choose love for God, which actually is very different to how a lot of people think about love nowadays, right? Like love is primarily what? A feeling. You think about the phrase, fall into love. You fall into love like you fall into a ditch. It's like an accident. You don't intend to. It just happens, right? That's not the idea of love in the Bible. We can choose to love God. Sometimes even when you don't really feel it. You can choose to love others, sometimes, even when you don't really feel it. And I want to say to you, that's actually good news that love is a choice. You know why? Because if love was based primarily on feelings, God would have no reason to love us. Romans chapter 5 tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you think we were that lovable? Do you think when God saw us, in the state we're in, he's thinking, oh, gee, I just really love them. You know, they're so lovable. No, you're th- if love was primarily based on feelings, there would be no reason for God to love us. But love is primarily a choice. So today, God might be saying to you, choose to love. So what's God's love language? Well, I'm going to look at the how and then the why. So points two and three, let's keep going. How to love the Lord. Remember, When you see the Lord, L-O-R-D in capital, it's the word, it's trying to uh, capture the word Yahweh. It's the personal name of God, Yahweh. Older translations might have Jehovah. So I'm going to use Yahweh, all right? Chapter 6, verse 5, love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is talking about loving God with all of us. Heart there all your heart is not primarily about your emotions and feelings. Again, we think of heart as primarily the seat of our emotions. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the heart is the seat of your, or the center of your decisions and desires. 
Right? Your desires involve your emotions, but it's not just your emotions. And certainly your decisions are mainly about your will and your mind. So the heart is your mind, your will, your motivations. Yeah? That's what it means. So it's sort of like this. If you're a year 12 student, like Rachel for this time next year doing her HSC, she might be thinking, I've set my heart to get 99 for my ATAR. If Rachel... I hope that's not what you're thinking. Um, I mean, good on you if it is, but... I've set my heart to top the HSC, or I've set my heart to get that job. You're not talking about your emotions, are you? When you set your heart on doing something. Right? It's, it's about setting my desire, my will, my, to pursue it. That's what we mean. And that's sort of what it means here. So loving God with all your heart is kind of being single-minded, if you like. What about soul? Love God with all your soul. Um, The soul here is not talking about that eternal soul that goes to heaven when you die. That's not what it's talking about. Your soul is your inmost being. Um, Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise Him, all my inmost being. It's saying the same thing in two different ways. So when we say something like, I've put my heart and soul into cooking this dish for you. right? You're not talking about pouring your immortal soul into the dish. You're talking about, I've given everything that I have into this effort of cooking this dish for you. That's what it means, right? Soul. So loving God with all your soul, if you like, is being wholehearted about something. Kind of funny. The heart doesn't mean heart, but the soul means heart. Forget that. Anyway, it means being wholehearted. You poured yourself into it. Love God with your soul. What about the third one? Loving God with all your strength. Um, Literally, in the original, which is in Hebrew, it's Awkward, because um, there's no translation for it. That's why it's translated strength. But it's literally, love God with all your mostness. Okay? With all your mostness. It means intensity. With all your passion. It means you hold nothing back. Right? So loving God with all your strength is to love God unreservedly. Reserve is to hold back. Unreserved is hold nothing back. So this is kind of the way I like to... We're going to talk about it coming up. God's people, both then and now, are called to love God, right, with all of us, all of our heart, soul, and strength. In other words, single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, unreservedly. I think you get a picture of that when you think about top athletes, uh, which is not me, but um, top athletes who train especially for things like Olympic events or world championships. Um, this time last week, I was riding a bike. Um, I'm a bit of a, a mammal, which is middle-aged men in Lycra. Um, and uh, I'm so not a top athlete, but uh, I know a little bit about cycling because uh, I'm interested in it. I read it. I, I watch you know, the Tour de France. Um, those who are competing at the top level, so you think Tour, Tour de France, 21 days, 3,000 plus kilometers, all right, um, it's insane, but if, if you're pursuing a goal and being able to compete in the Tour de France, especially if you want to try to win, cyclists and any top athletes the same, every part of their life is shaped by that, okay? For cyclists, it means not only that they shave their legs and wear lycra. I, I don't shave my legs, by the way. My wife wouldn't let me. I would like to, but she wouldn't let me. And my wife's more important than my bike, so I got my priorities right. Um, Anyway, for top cyclists, not just the awkward things like shaving their legs and wearing lycra and all that kind of stuff. It's what they eat. Every single calorie is counted. Okay? Every single calorie is counted. They get weighed, they get measured, they get fat pinched, 
to, to make sure that their body fat ratio, their weight is exactly right throughout the whole time. Um, they, and cyclists, because they spend so much time expending so much energy, most cyclists in, cycle, in this season, which is most of the year, they would try and avoid walking as much as possible because it's expending unnecessary energy. So you can imagine living with a cyclist, and their wives will complain about this, right? Basically, they're, they're on their bikes, and when they're off their bikes, they're lazy as. Because they don't want to walk. If they have to even walk to get the remote control three steps away, they will avoid it. Okay? Every single part of their lives is about winning. That's what this means. That's the picture. And I wonder if this is how you love God. When you think about loving God in His love language, is this what you're thinking? Because I'll tell you what the opposite of these three things are. Heart, soul, and mind. Or opposite of single-minded, wholehearted, unreserved. The opposite is this. You're double-minded. Or you can't make up your mind. You're half-hearted. And you're lukewarm. Neither here nor there. You see, you aren't loving God in His love language if you love God, but you're also loving and serving God substitutes. Good things that may have become God things, or sometimes we use the word idols. You know, Jesus says you cannot love God and money. Actually, the word is mammon, right? Which means not just money, but material things. Do you love God and material things? Are you divided in your love, double-minded? You, you, you cannot love God if God is one of the most important things, but not the most important thing. Jesus says, even your family does not come before God. You can't love God if you pick and choose which areas you will obey and honor Him, and then other areas you just kind of gloss over. Do you do that with the commands of God? Do you think, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty good with not murdering, haven't killed anyone this week. But I'm going to sit a bit loose on do not steal because that tax return that I'm filing, if I just fudge over some details, I can, you know, claim more back on tax returns, even though you know in your heart it's a little bit dishonest. Do you choose and pick which areas that you will obey and not? You're not loving God if it's not single-minded, wholehearted, unreserved. And you don't love God, by the way, if it's never costly and it's always comfortable. If, if, you have, if there's never an area of your life you're thinking, oh, that's going to really cost me. That's going to be hard. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about effort. If it's never costly, it's just always comfortable, then you're probably not loving God unreservedly, okay? Do you see? This is what God is calling us, all of us, to love Him like that. It's all of us, but it's also all of life. Look at the next verse. Chapter 6, verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Now, firstly, these commandments in verse 6 is almost certainly talking about what happened in chapter 5, which you didn't have time to look at, but remember, chapter 5 is about the Ten Commandments. All right? Which means that loving God, again, is not primarily about feelings. It's not even abstract. Okay, love God and, you know, just get the vibe of loving God. 
And it's certainly not love God however you and I define what that is. However, remember, we've got to speak God's love language. And His love language is single-minded, wholehearted, unreserved obedience. Obedience to His commands. And if we had time, we would look at how the Ten Commandments in chapter 5 covers all the key aspects of Israel's life together with God, or with, with their God, Yahweh, as, as His people. But we will also see in a few weeks' time, chapters 12 to 26 will spell all of those commandments out in even more detail. And again, we'll come to that in a few weeks' time, but let me just flag it for you. It literally is all of life. Now, you see that driven home even more, don't you, in verse 7. Let's keep reading there. Verse 7, have a look. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, get the picture, don't you? Right? These commandments are to be stuff that is not just in your home, but outside of your home. It's to be part of your domestic life as well as your secular life. It's to be your part of your daily activity. When you walk, when you lie down, when you get up. Keep reading verse 8. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. You're to remind yourself of them. You're also to remind other people that this is important to you. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. It's your private life, door frame of your house. It's your public life. The gate's a symbol of public sphere, public life. Okay, now let me show you a picture. Orthodox Jewish people literally did this. Right? You see that? Tying them as a symbol on your hands, bind them on your foreheads. They literally kept um, part of God's Word um, on, on their foreheads. That's that little thing, that little capsule on their heads. And then they would bind them, their arms with these things to, to be a reminder. Now that seems pretty strange to us. But the point they're trying to make is, you know, and, and that God's Word is trying to make is, you don't have to take it literally, but it, it's got it's to be so th- through your life, so evident. Now, I think we, we get that because when something is so important, you just think about different subcultures, groups of people. Um, you can probably think of groups of people um, that, that really believe in something or are or, or real fans of something and they believe it, live it, breathe it, listen to it, wear it, embody it. Um, to a certain extent, um, you know, you think about, for example, hipster culture, right? You go to the inner west um, or Aaron trying to be hipster. And... Um, <laughs> Love you, Aaron. Um, okay, you know, you can, you can pick them a mile away. It's the beards. Sorry, Asian hipsters. Um, it's the hats. But then also on the right, you've got um, otaku culture. Who knows what otaku means? People are into Japanese anime and all that kind of stuff. Um, but really most evident, um, this is going flashback. So some of us who are older will remember um, punk culture in the 70s and 80s. Okay, punk culture was all-encompassing. It was not just, like, you don't dress up like that because, you, you, you know, you want to be accepted, okay? Um, but punk culture is what they wore. It was their fashion. It was also their music, punk music. But it, it, it embodied an attitude. They were, you know, anti-authority, okay? And it was everything, every part of them. That was what defined their subculture. And that's what this passage is talking about, not necessarily that we have to wear the little things on our hands and bind them around our hands, but it's trying to get at the point. Loving and obeying God has got to be so single-minded, so wholehearted, so unreserved, it's going to be inside, outside, in the home, in the public sphere. It's going to be visible to others. It's going to be evident to you. All right? 
That's how thorough it's going to be. That's God's love language. Pretty full on, isn't it? Now, before we get to the next point, um, I just want to really want to point out how much Deuteronomy will give special attention, especially, or application, to what this means for us training the next generation. Now, we didn't read it earlier, but, but you, you see how the end of chapter 6, so have a look at verses 20 to 25. Yeah, we're going to read that in a moment. But verse 7, remember, impress them on your children. Right? It's going to expand all that, and it will do it again and again. Verses 20 to 25, look at what it says. Let me read it. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all his laws before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Passing it on to the next generation is key. And you, you understand why. Again, remember this is the next generation. And the former generation failed. And this generation is to make sure that even after they enter the land, the next generation, the ones after, will keep on loving God. But the other thing, to, the reason why it's also um, really challenging is because we know, don't we, and if you're a parent or you know young, young kids, you'll know that kids don't miss a thing, do they? They really don't miss a thing. You parents, myself included, will know that if you are at any point inconsistent or hypocritical between what you say and what you do, your kids will pick it up, won't they? And they will ask you about it. But on the positive note, they also don't miss a thing. And if something is important to you, they will also ask you about it, won't they? So your children are a good barometer, a good gauge to what really is important to you. If your children never ask you, Mom and Dad, why do we prioritize going to church? Why is it that one night a week, you know, you, you also meet up with other people? Why is it that you read the Bible in the mornings? and pray at night. Why do we do these things? If they never ask, probably God isn't really part of your life, is it? So I want to say to parents here, what a tremendous responsibility we have, don't we, mums and dads? Every parent is a pastor. Do you know that? Every parent is a pastor because your kids are the flock that God has entrusted to you to shepherd this week we had a, a board meeting, and uh, I hope this is a positive thing, so I'm, I'm just going to mention by name. Um, I d- didn't prepare him for this and hope they're not embarrassed about it, but um, one of our elders, Andrew Lim, was saying, oh, he just loves to hear Declan Wong sing. You know little Declan, Kirby and Susan's uh, second child? I'm sure all of their boys sing, but he was just mentioning Declan. And, and Kirby, Elder Kirby, was really uh, honest. He said, you know what? There was a whole time when this was really hard to get them to stand in church and sing. Um, but really what made the difference for Declan really singing uh, now is uh, they, you know, in, in their family Bible time and worship time, they started singing some of the songs together in their home. And so he knows the songs coming into church. And also he's, you know, learned to read and stuff like that. And so that's really helped. But, you know, Kirby just said that really honestly and really offhand. And Kirby, I hope you don't mind me embarrassing you and Susan. But I just want to put that out as an example. If worship 
and Bible doesn't happen in the home and prayer doesn't happen in the home and it only happens in church parents and I think we're neglecting a really key part of our responsibility, don't we? Aren't we? Now I say that not as someone who's figured it out. We struggle Monday nights, family Bible time, ask one of our kids. It's sometimes really, really bad. Okay, and really, really difficult. But we really want to make sure that God is right into the home. Now, by the way, you might be single or your kids might be grown up. Collectively, we now have a responsibility for the young children and young people in our church. We collectively have that. And even if you're single, have no kids, or your kids have all grown up, if you're part of this church community, then our responsibility is also for the next generation. That's why if you are a Sunday school teacher, a kids' ministry leader, or you are a youth group leader, that is so important. I've heard it once said, if someone asks you what, do you, what ministry do you do, and you say, I'm just a Sunday school teacher, then you shouldn't be a Sunday school teacher. Because there's no just about it. Those who are modeling and teaching our children, our youth, are doing some of the most important ministries in our church, because it's about the next generation. Teaching them how to love the Lord. All right, enough of that. Let's go to the final, uh, sorry, third point. Why love the Lord? All right, so what's God's love language? We've seen the how, now the why. So back to verse 5. Remember, verse 5 is arguably the most important verse to Jews, even Jews today. It's called the Shema. The Shema, Shema in Hebrew just means hear. It's the first word of, of verse 5 when it says, hear, O Israel. And this verse is super important. Hear, O Israel, it says, verse 5, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the why. This is the foundation, the reason for loving God. And to summarize what it is getting at, loving God comes from who He is and what He's done. All right, who He is and what He's done. You'll see that under point three. So firstly, who He is. Uh, the religious context of the land they were going in, where they had all these nations, Canaanite nations, not just one nation, many nations, all of them worshipped many, many gods. It's called polytheism, many gods. And each tribe or each uh, nation would have different gods. And that was the context they were coming into. And so in that context, God is saying to them something quite unique, right? Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. Now, here's the tricky part. Literally, in the, uh, in the Hebrew, it's just four words. And there's no verbs, there's no is. So the four words are Yahweh, or the Lord, our God, it's one word in Hebrew, Yahweh, one. Just four words. That gives you a possibility of six different ways of seeing it, all right? I've listed them all for you. Now, in case it kind of confuses you to no end, really the first two are the key ones and I think capture the rest. So I'm just going to talk about right, the top two. So what could it mean? Or what are the two key, meaning, key meanings? The first key meaning is reflected in the first one. Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Or, or Yahweh, our God, uh, Yahweh, Yah, our God, is the only God, or something like that, okay? Um, this is trying to capture what's called monotheism, that God is alone, unique, or supreme. He is the only one. So, um, chapter, uh, don't turn it up, but chapter 4, verse 35, this would have been seen last week. Uh, Moses says to them, You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. 
beside him there is no other. Right? They were going to come to a land with lots of God, and God says, beside me there is no other, no other God in existence but Yahweh, monotheism. As well as, there is no one like Yahweh. So it's not just that he's the only God, but anything else in the world just cannot compare with God. Yahweh is incomparable, he's unique, he's supreme. All right, so that's the first essential meaning. Yahweh is the only God. The second is this, second line, possibly. It's saying, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. Now that sounds strange to us. Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. But remember, they were polytheists, and even polytheists today, including Hindus, basically you can have a God who reveals himself in different ways to different people at different places. So it's, this, it's the same God behind it, but he's sort of like he's wearing different masks. That's one of the ideas of polytheism. So it's a little bit like Korean fried chicken. How, you say? No, it's not that God is delicious. Um, but Korean fried chicken is this. Like, you can get Korean fried chicken in lots of places now. It's the it's, it's same, same, but different, right? It, it's, it's the same thing, Korean fried chicken, but every different shop will have their own way of preparing Korean fried chicken. That's sort of their view of God. You might, so they're tempted to think, well, Yahweh is going to be one way here and another Yahweh there. And a, you know what I mean? Right? The Yahweh of the hills is different to the Yahweh of the valleys. The Yahweh of Jerusalem is different to the Yahweh of Bethel. It's the kind of one God with different marks. But for Israel, they were to remember there are not many manifestations or versions of God or Yahweh, but only one Yahweh. So we're not talking about KFC Korean fried chicken. We're talking about Kentucky fried chicken. You don't, you don't get it, do you? Korean fried chicken, you go to different Korean fried chicken shops, you know, in different versions. KFC only has one, 11 herbs and spices locked away in some vault somewhere. You go to KFC anywhere in the, around the world, it's the same KFC. Now do you get it? You don't. Okay, forget that. I'm really hungry now. Um, right, there are not many versions of Yahweh, only one. So this is saying there is one revelation only. It's not relativism. Relativism is, you know, uh, you have your beliefs, I have my belief. You have your version of Yahweh, I have my version of Yahweh. No, 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 no. Yahweh is consistent. He's not wearing different masks. There's only one Yahweh. That's the other point it's getting at. Now, the whole point of this is who the Lord is, right? The who is he question flows directly into how they're to love him, right? If you understand who he is, then you will know how to love him. Why? Remember, loving God is single-minded, wholehearted, unreserved. Well, that makes so much sense when God is the one, the only, the supreme. And we have to love Him on His terms, you see? Single-minded, all of heart, all of soul, all of strength, love comes from God being the one, the only, the supreme, the unique. But secondly, it also comes from what He's done. Remember, Yahweh, our God, the first two words, Yahweh is God's special revealed name. He didn't reveal himself as Yahweh to anyone else in that time, but to his people Israel. It's a little bit like um, after high school finishes, year 12, right? It's the best time, I reckon. I mean, HSC aside, year 12 is like the best year because your, your teachers start treating you like human beings for the first time. And especially after you finish your HSC or even sometimes during your exams, they actually will even maybe introduce themselves to you with their first names. You know, so up to now they've been Sir and Miss or Ms. And then they're like, hi, I'm John. You can call me John from now on because you're no longer a student at this school. Wow, okay? Yahweh is God's personal revealed name. It's a sign of intimacy. But it's also Yahweh, our God. It wasn't always the case that he was their God. 
only after he had rescued them. See, it's not true that only in the New Testament you'll see grace, undeserved favor. Grace is everywhere in the Old Testament as well. Relationship with God doesn't start with people trying to get to God. It always starts with God's grace, Old and New Testament. Now, we saw that in verses 21 to 25, remember? When your son asks you, what are you going to tell them? Tell them what the Lord did for us. Tell them because God loved and rescued us. You also see that, again, we don't have time to see uh, to look back at it, but in chapter 5, before the Ten Commandments, before commandment number one, in other words, I am Yahweh your God, who did what? Who brought you out of slavery. The whole basis for God's commandments is, what have I done for you first? I rescued you first. I gave you grace, undeserved favor first. I made you my people first. Then, as a consequence, love and obey me. Right? What he's done then flows into our love for him. And I want to also draw the connection between who he is and what he's done. There's actually a connection. Who he is, in fact, guarantees what he's done. Oh, what do I mean by that? Well, if Yahweh, who he is, isn't supreme, unique, and incomparable, then how can you trust his power and his sovereignty to save you? If in the polytheistic world right? There's not one God, but many gods. Then how do you know that the God who saved you isn't going to be defeated by some other God who's going to then enslave you? Do you see what I mean? Only if God is unique, supreme, only God can you trust that when he saves you, he really saves you. Also, if Yahweh wears many different masks and he's not one Yahweh, then how how do you know that you can trust his promises? How do you know? He's not lying to you. But because he is reliable and there's only one Yahweh, then what you see is what you get. You see what I mean? What he does for you is grounded on who he is. Okay, so that's Deuteronomy chapter 6. Coming back to us, though, my final point. Verses 5 and 6, as I said, are brought into the New Testament. It's not just for Jews then, it's for us now, today. Those who follow and love the Lord. But you see how the New Testament will take verses 5 and 6, these key verses, and transform them or reapply them. Look at 1 Corinthians 8. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Right? That's Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, isn't it? For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we lived. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Really significant that he uses the word one Lord in the context of quoting Deuteronomy 6, and then he applies it to who? Jesus Christ. It means the followers of Jesus today were to take everything that Moses or God said to Israel about the Lord and see it applied to us about our Lord, the Lord Jesus. Same God, by the way, but God come in flesh. And when you see it in that light, it's actually intensified because in Jesus, we actually see much more of who God is and what he's done than Israel were able to see. And we're to love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, and strength, or single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, unreservedly, even more. Because in Jesus, we see God on a cross. 
No matter how great the rescue from Egypt is, it was only appointed to the most amazing rescue of God when he would, the Lord, when he would become a man and he would willingly go to the cross and die. That's our great rescue. Not from slavery to a human master, the Pharaoh, but from slavery to sin and death and hell. And when you see that, you'll understand Jesus' words when he, well, actually, John's words when he says, we love because he first loved us. You get that? Because the Lord Jesus loved us with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength. Don't you see when you see the cross? When Jesus spoke about the cross, that was his way of loving us with all of his heart. Remember, loving you with your heart is to be single-minded. And Jesus, a number of times in the gospel says, I must, I must set my heart, my, my mind on going to the cross to be betrayed, tortured, and crucified. He loved us with all of his heart. He loved us with all of his soul. On the night before he died and went to the cross, he was praying and he said, God, take this cup away from me. And knowing what was going to happen, because he would have to take our sins in our place, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow because he loved you and me with all of his soul. And he loved us with all of his strength right up to the very last breath as he hang on the cross and he was so exhausted and he finally gave up his strength and he said, it is finished, it is done. He loved us with all of his strength. And this same Jesus asks you today, asks me, do you love me? And if he were to ask you right now, which I believe he is asking all of Jesus, his followers right now, do you love me? How are you going to answer that question? How are you going to answer that? Is it single-minded, wholehearted, unreserved? Yes, I love you, Jesus. Or is it yes, but? What's the but? Because the but is what you're holding back. I'm going to ask um, the musicians to come up and... uh, Becky's just going to play in the background because I, I really want this to be an opportunity for us not to rush too quickly into singing our response song. But as the music plays, just if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to ask yourself, ask God to show you what you're holding back. What part of you is is not single-minded, wholehearted, unreserved in your love for the Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord Father, that you would now reveal in our hearts. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. Take your time to do that. What is it? What are you holding back? What is the yes but? It may be that loving Jesus, the challenge today is for you not to be ashamed 
to call yourself a Christian at school, at university, in your workplaces. Even to be suffering in some way for it. Just to make your private more public. I'm not talking about Bible bashing people, just letting people know, I am a Christian, I will stand up for what I believe in. And in this day and age, it's not easy, is it? <laughs> you want to say you, you don't support same-sex marriage? You're going to get slammed. Are you willing to do that in your love for Jesus? Loving Jesus for you today may just be that sin in your life, as I said, the, the, the part that you gloss over because you'd rather not have to obey in that area and no longer ignoring that. Today, God may be saying to you, that's, that's the area. I confront it, confess it, deal with it. It may be for you surrendering and sacrificing pleasure, money, ambition. Because you know today that God is saying to you, don't try and love me and those things at the same time. If I'm the only God, then I'm to have your exclusive, undevoted, single-minded love. It may be something as simple as, you know what? God is saying to you, I just want you to spend time with me every day. Not only when you need me, shoot up a prayer, like I like that. But loving me means that I am part of your every day. So why won't you prioritize spending time in my word, in worship, in prayer? Or if it's that important to you, then maybe spending time in the word and prayer with your spouse with your closest friends, leading your kids in family worship and devotion. Maybe that's how you make God's love seep into every part of your life. Or maybe God has been putting on your heart for a while a big step in faith, a big step. And obeying is going to be radical and costly. And you've been holding back. God is saying to you, unreserved love for me today looks like that. Take that step of faith. It may be forgiving and reconciling with someone, letting go of anger and bitterness. For some people here, I know what this feels like. This huge wet blanket that's kind of come over your whole life. It's affected everything. And you just find it so hard to let go of the bitterness, willing to forgive and reconcile. It's just it's holding you back. Not just from loving the person that you need to forgive, but loving God as well. Or maybe for you, God is saying to you, just surrender to me your fears and your worries and your doubts. These things that you cannot control are eating you up. Learn what it means to let them go and let me. Or maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you've been on the fringes for a while and you're like, oh, I just can't. And God is saying to you, today, give your life to me. Because I loved you single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, unreservedly. You know that already. 
So are you willing to do that? Are you willing to even make a stand for it, get baptized, get confirmed? Yeah, your parents are going to, whatever. Right? If you're an adult, you make your own decisions. When it comes to standing up for Jesus, getting baptized, getting confirmed. God may be saying today, time to make a stand or time to give your life to Jesus. I don't, I don't know what it is, okay? God does, and I hope he has revealed that to you. I'm going to pray. We're going to stand. We're going to sing our response song. And then we'll have some more time to, to talk about this with each other. Let's pray. Father, take the words that you've spoken to our hearts through your word in Deuteronomy, what you've shown us about loving you wholeheartedly, unreservedly, single-mindedly. And please give us the power to do that, the willingness to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. Let's sing.